Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go in to the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I primarily on social media, on Facebook and YouTube, amongst uh, other platforms that we're on. Like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. Help us out in any way you can. And today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by John Rizzo. And John Rizzo has a book, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and Eternal Life. Um, so it's an important conversation because Joe and I on our show, uh, we're doing a, a lot of culture war commentary and Hollywood is in the center of that culture war. So we're happy to have John on. For those of you who are not familiar with John Rizzo, a brief introduction. John was born and raised in Jersey City, New Jersey, where he learned from the Sisters of Christian Charity at St. Nicholas School and from the Jesuits at St. Peter's Prep and College. He furthered his education at Fordham University School of Law and has been a practicing lawyer for over 30 years. He has always regarded himself as much a Christian and a movie buff as much as an attorney. He has been a parishioner of Corpus Christi Parish in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey for the past 25 years. And that's where he met Father Lou Papera at Corpus Christi. And in his making um, his Cursillo weekend, under his guidance that John uncovered his passion to write about the gospels. As for his passion for old movies, that was nurtured in front of a black and white TV in his parents' living room with his four older brothers. John Rizzo, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, my friend. Thank you, Joe and Joe. Pleasure to be here. All right. John, we're going to start with a prayer. We always start with a prayer because all good things start with a prayer. In the name amen. of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we find to you a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despised not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Now, amen. I picked St. Genesius for a reason. Because when I was at Seton Hall University, all right, we had a professor who ran the theater department. And I did a lot of, I was an actor a long time ago, John, in, a, in another heard, life, yeah. okay? I yeah. thought that's what I wanted to do. And yeah. Doc McGlone, who was the, he was the communications uh, professor, and he ran the theater department uh, or the theater program at Seton Hall. And he would, be, he would end every prayer before every show with St. Genesius. Because St. Genesius, interesting story for those of you out there, he was a Roman, okay? And he was a pagan Roman who was an actor. And part at the time of the um, of the Roman farces that they used to uh, put on, you know, in the public areas, they would uh, mock the Eucharist. They would mock Christians. And Saint Genesius had a, had a conversion on stage one night uh, where they were mocking the Eucharist, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And he was persecuted for it. They tried to make him recant of that, and he wouldn't do it. And they put him to death. He was martyred. And he's wow. the patron. He's the patron saint of actors. So I love it. I think it's, it's very fitting to Saint. We ask Saint Genesis to to pray for us. So John, thanks for being on the show. Like I said, uh, Hollywood's a big thing. Let's let's talk about Hollywood. I'm going to hand it over to Joe, and we'll rock and roll. Yeah, John. Okay. Before we get into your book. Uh, which is obviously moving pictures to move your soul. We want to talk about Hollywood in general. Um, basically, you know, you in your book, you cover 95 films that basically bring out nice themes. They're positive themes, peace, hope, love, eternal life. Um, not necessarily 
Christian, quote unquote, films, but films that lift the spirit. Um, we want to talk before we get into Hollywood at present. We want to talk about uh, Hollywood in the past. Um, 1930 to 1950s, that was known as the golden age of Hollywood. Why was that, John? Talk a little bit about that, because I want to try to juxtapose that to where we are now. I think um, it's called the golden age, among other reasons, because there were so many excellent movies that were produced during that time period. Um, it was a time period when the movie productions were largely in the hands of the large studios like MGM, Paramount, uh, Columbia, 20th Century Fox. Um, also a time when many great actors and directors were under, the co under contract to those studios. So there was a constant flow of high quality pr productions coming out. Um, but, but interestingly, it was also a time when the movies were, uh, you might say, more reverential uh, in general, where there was more respect for our country, more respect for law and order. Um, before we got into the age of the uh, anti-hero and that type of thing that, that took hold in the late, uh, say, in the 1960s and from there, from there forward. So uh, it was a time when the movies were, I would say, you know, from, from my perspective, um, more true to what a Christian philosophy should be, even though in many cases the studios were run by people who were, who were Jewish, but they kind of had their hearts in the right place, so to speak, in terms of what they were making. But, you know, I think America was different at that time. I mean, it's changed. I mean, again, you know, from what you read, uh, it was just more of a wholesome place. I mean, divorce was rare. I mean, I can remember watching I Love Lucy in black and white on that black and white TV. We had one, too. So did I. We're all dating ourselves. <laughs> so, I mean, I could remember they slept in different beds. I mean, yeah. like now, forget it. She I mean, wasn't. Desi Arnaz was not even allowed in the script to use the word pregnant, to say Lucy's pregnant. All right, uh -huh. he had to say she's in his Cuban accent. She's expecting. She's expecting. You know, uh -huh. th that's how that's how different it was. Um, but I would argue, and I've always argued that look, if it, in art, if you could just do whatever you want, which we'll get into the post, let's say post. Um, production code period okay but if you have so I, I always thought that if you want to be a great artist there are rules in other words the artist for his full potential to come through in his, in what he's producing you can't it's not just a matter of doing whatever you want i don't care if you're talking about michelangelo or you're talking about um you know uh federico fellini i i mean you you have rules under which you operate and then it's within those rules that you produce this great work of art after the production code got broken it's like the wild, wild west. I, I, I mean, talk about that, uh, you know, a little bit, John. I mean, you know, because it seemed like under those rules that so, uh, supposedly nowadays they try to tell us, oh, those were so oppressive. You know, the rules that were put on the, the creative people of Hollywood were so oppressive. But that's when the greatest movies were made. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting reading what some people have to say about the production code. You know, um, also just kind of off off track a bit. When I was a kid watching old movies, I didn't know anything about production code. So like we, we would watch movies like uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, King Kong, just same a few excellent movies from the early 30s, which were before the production code. And I mean, I didn't care. I, I thought they were good movies, mm -hmm. even though there was uh, no production code. But now, kind of after the fact, people talk like the production code with some horrible thing, some horrible form of censorship. Um, and yet it seems that the, the filmmakers uh, prospered very nicely with the production code. It didn't really affect them tremendously. You know, maybe the women had a little bit more clothing on. Um, maybe things were a little less risque, uh, a little more overall decency in the productions, but it, it didn't hurt uh, in any way, I would say, obviously, the movies that came out after production code, um, as you said, were some of the greatest movies ever made. So well, let's define it for our audience. Some people yeah. may not know what that is, the production code. To be honest with you, I didn't until I basically met Joe because he was involved in acting. Yeah. Uh, like you, John, you just saw a movie and you thought it was good or it was wholesome. Yeah. I didn't know there was no such, you know, to be honest, I'm just being honest. I'll be honest also. I didn't know there was a production code until I 
joined Facebook and got on these various Facebook movie groups and have people talking about pre-code movies. Like, what is a pre-code movie? I didn't know what a pre-code movie was. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's something that um, from from reading up on it a little bit, you know, there were a number of scandals that hit the, the uh, movie industry in the 1920s um, that were disturbing to the industry itself that made the industry concerned that it might lose uh, business and viewership because of these things. Um, and I also think um, there was some influence of the church. The church was much more influential in those days with its members as far as directing them as to what they should and should not do, what they should and should not see. So it was almost like an, um, you know, an alliance between the movie making industry and the church as far as what should be presented to the public for viewing. Hmm. Um, and as, as I said, it, if you look at movies pre-code and post-code, you could look at a movie that was made in 1934 before the code was fully in effect and a movie that was made in 1935, you're not gonna find that much difference. In fact, in terms of the quality, the, the later movies might be, be better. It, it just really depends more on the script, the acting, the directing, than whether or not there was a code in place. So it's, it's almost like um, something that people like to complain about just because they feel like complaining, but uh, I don't think it really, had that much impact one way or the other. You know, the you, you mentioned something that's interesting, that the church had more of an effect. I mean, it's the same church, but yet it banned together and it made a statement to the parishioners saying that this is not something we're going to tolerate. What do I mean by that? Say excessive nudity or profanity or violence. Blasphemy, blasphemy was a big one. In other words, that, that you could not blaspheme, excuse me, in a movie, which is basically mm. saying... You can't offend Christians. And whether or not you like it in America in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, most of the country, and still is nominally, I guess, um, a Christian country. So there's no, I mean, again, it, I want to have this conversation with you, John, because because there's a, this, this, this uh, misrepresentation, misrepresentation of what the production code was. It was very simple. No profanity, no nudity, no gratuitous violence, and no blasphemy. That's mm -hmm. it. And not every movie was the greatest story ever told. I mean, if you look at the themes of, let's say, you, I'm sure you, you're a fan of a lot of them, John, film noir movies, okay? Maltese right. Falcon, just to use that as an example, or uh, the, 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 um, the classic, uh, The Big Heat, okay? These are film noir classics. Again, not Christian movies, telling stories, exploring very dark themes, but we don't need to see the sex. There's gangsters in those movies, but you don't need to see gratuitous violence. You don't need to have, you know, the F-bomb one sentence after another. And yet these movies are classics and they're exploring mm -hmm. very, very, you know, they're very dark themes movies. Um, I wanted to say that and ask for your comment, but also remember, also remind our audience or tell those who don't know, it was not an action. The production code was not an action of the government. It was, it was a, it was a private alliance to use the word you use between Hollywood and the Catholic hierarchy in America, that this was the agreement. And if the Catholic hierarchy thought that there was going to be a, uh, a, 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 the, a not, uh, not holding up their end of the bargain from Hollywood's point of view, they would tell the parishioners, you cannot see this movie. Right. Okay. Um, had nothing to do with the government Had nothing no, to do no. with the first amendment. Censorship. Well, it's, it was purely free market. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, it was it was something that the uh, the filmmakers brought upon themselves to try to um, stay in good standing with, with the church, so that they wouldn't be affect, affected at the box office. I suppose you would say, yeah. Um, to go back to what you were saying about the the movies and uh, from the film noir period, it, it's almost like um, stand up comedians. You know, now stand up comedians, you might hear them uh, they curse every every sentence has a curse in it. It's like you can be funny without having to curse. You know, you go back and watch uh, stand-up comedians from 20, 30 years ago. They were saying things that were funny, hilarious. It had to, you know, fall on the full laughing, but they weren't cursing constantly. And then at some point, it seems like uh, it was decided that to be a comedian, you had to curse every sentence. And uh, similarly with the movies. I mean, if you write a good story, if you have a good script, 
there's no reason that you have to curse to get your point across. Right. And, and I always thought that, you know, that that was a that was a, a uh, and we'll talk about it because this was this was one of our next questions was after the production. When did the production code end, John? Would you say about 66, 67? So what was it like around then? Yeah, I would say so. I'm not honestly sure. It's kind of like it seemed like it gradually faded away, you know, and they still had the uh, the rating system, of course, G, P, G, M, X. Um, so there was still some self-regulation by the by the movie industry, but it was not uh, in the sense of a, of a code where there was a um, input from the church as far as what was going on. Right, that was self-imposed. I'm sorry? No, the, the rating system was self-imposed. Yes, exactly, sure. No, you know, And Jack Valenti used to come under fire all the time, in other words, for saying, well, no, we need to let people know with this rating system what's in the movie so that so particularly parents um you know could say well whether or not they want their kids let's say going to see a particular movie so there was pg later on they became pg 13 g r those and all these things again I, I failed to see how this was oppressive to 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 the to the filmmakers and the producers in any way mm -hmm. because they just want no rules whatsoever and they've shown that and, and i mean and that was lead us in to our our next question about the deterioration of um uh, of movies after the production code it just got to be one thing after another first there was like movies like the wild bunch and the godfather in other words and i'm a big godfather fan but there's a lot of gratuitous violence especially in the scene where Sonny gets killed okay did you really need the guy to get shot 180 times <laughs> to, to make the point seriously yeah, it could, yeah. you know it's like you know in high noon gary cooper kills everybody but you didn't have to see the bullet going through the guy's head did you I mean, and it was just this steady progression. Do you see that since the production code up to this time, it's just been basically a steady progression down this hole of starting with violence, then sex, profanity, and just further and further down down this into this abyss? Well, yes. I mean, there, there are, of course, um, exceptions all the way along. There are still movies that don't have that. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, almost like, um, you know, once the devil gets, gets a... a, a a foot in, you know, he doesn't let go. He's just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And um, uh, filmmakers, I guess a lot of filmmakers are not uh, terribly interested in in presenting clean, wholesome entertainment. They want to go for the uh, titillation, if you will, and, and um, pushing envelopes, as they say, you know. And uh, yeah, so it has been, I think, a gradual um, descent into the maelstrom you know, I, I think it's something that's downstream from culture because, I mean, our culture has changed. I mean, even from when I was a kid, I went to, the, I went to high school, I'm 51, you know, in the 80s, um, and I look at high school now, it's just changed. Uh, I mean, just the whole idea of transgenderism, I mean, like that was not even a conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and now it's front and center in every conversation, mm -hmm. in every school board. It's not also, it, it, and here's another thing, you know, you talked about issues in schools. It was always poorer schools. No, that it may be more pervasive in wealthier schools, some of these issues, these woke issues, how things have changed. The culture has shifted. Um, it shifted away from God, sadly. And I, I mean, we all know, um, you know, God very clearly said, if you don't, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Jesus said that I didn't. And I know that in my own life, the further you get away from God, the darker your life has you know, can become. And also, I think that's happening in the culture. And I think the films are just basically representing it. What do you what do you think? Well, I think that's true. But I'm not sure where the uh, where does it start? You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg is, is the culture leading the film or the films leading the culture? I, I'm not really sure. I think, to a large extent, it's it's the, uh, the media that is spurning society to go downhill. Um, primarily because they can make money off of uh, mm, selling stuff that really shouldn't be sold, if, if I could say No, that. I would agree. I, I think that's the thing. I think you hit on the thing. It's like when Hollywood thought it was advantageous to them monetarily, they went with the production code. There was also a Protestant movement too, I believe the Hayes Commission, which wasn't as successful as a production code, which, which was predominantly Catholic. Mm -hmm. But those who ran Hollywood thought that it benefited them 
financially. But then as the studio system came to an end and you have more independent filmmakers, they didn't feel the need. They right. figured they could carve out enough of a niche and make enough money. My problem with it is, look, I'm a big fan of the movie Goodfellas, okay? I, I just am. I think it's, a, it's an incredibly well-made picture. The, the, as I get older and I have a little bit more of a Catholic, a lot more of a Catholic sensibility, the story didn't have to be told that way where every, I mean, the violence and the, and the profanity. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I have pretty thick skin. We all have pretty thick skin. I look back on it and I say, you know, that's not the way, that's not the way movies should be. That's not the way movies should, it doesn't have to be there. Movies are not real life. I guess my point is, and I'd love for you to comment on that. Movies are theatrical productions. Mm-hmm. They're not real life. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be, well, oh, well, that's not how it happens in reality. But I don't need to see the bullet going through the guy's head. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to see the woman's breasts. And I don't need an F-bomb every other sentence because that might have it be in reality, but this is a movie. Yeah. It's re- representative of reality. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I'm not so sure that the reality doesn't follow from, from the media. Uh, did, did we have as much cursing when we didn't have as much cursing in movies? Did we have as much cursing in society? I don't, I don't think we did. I think you become um, sort of immune to it after you hear it enough times, after you see it enough times. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, there was uh, a little bit of cursing on the street, but uh, not like you hear today. You hear today, you hear, uh, you know, like five-year-old kids dropping F-bombs. And, and I, I don't think it's something that comes to them naturally. It's something they must have heard somewhere. Yeah. And um, maybe they heard it from their parents or maybe they heard it from watching television. And I, I don't doubt at all that it, uh, a lot of it comes from watching television. Yeah. So you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello, and we're way in the breach because when you're talking about Hollywood, you're going into the breach. In fact, you're not only in the breach, you're storming the machine gun nest because Hollywood is at the center of this culture war. And we're having a great conversation with John Rizzo about his book that you should go out and buy, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and Eternal Life. Uh, John, we have a few minutes before the break, but real quick, uh, where can we'll ask you again later on, but where can people buy your book? Okay, so if uh, if you happen to be in the northern New Jersey area, the book is sold at a place called The Religious Shop, which is a uh, store in Hasbrook Heights on the boulevard, but I understand not many people are going to be able to get there, so uh, it's available at Amazon.com it's, uh, because it's a self-published book, so uh, it's limited distribution and you can order it at Amazon. There's two volumes, um, and the, the one volume is uh, $17, and the other one is $18, because one is about 40 or 50 pages longer than the other. <laughs> John, the thing I love about your book, and I think this is something that every Catholic family uh, should own, is, it, you know, because I struggle with this as a dad. I have four children. What to put on television? We got rid mm-hmm. of our television. We just deal with DVDs now. And this is sort of like a catalog for people, for Catholic families. You want to watch a wholesome film. And some of these films, I mean, I did recognize, but some of them I didn't. And to be honest, with you i take your word for it i mean like i bet you they're good <laughs> you know what i mean as as you say they're movies about peace hope love and eternal life i'm all about it so i think it's something that catholic families could use as a resource especially moms and dads out there that want to put something wholesome on the television that doesn't have some of this stuff that we were just talking about that's why i think it's a great great buy for catholic families mm-hmm. Well, I hope that people who buy it will agree with you, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean a little just a cautionary word, not all of the not all of the movies in there are wholesome as you said earlier uh, in the introduction. They're not all Christian movies, they're not all um, about Jesus, you know, they're but they're movies from which you can get a a Christian value system. Um so even a picture like uh, we mentioned uh, Casablanca uh, or The Big Sleep, right? Two two Humphrey Bogart movies. Um there's a lot of things that go on in those movies that aren't really all that nice. Uh, there are people being murdered, people being killed. Uh, in fact, in The Big Sleep, there's a whole bunch of people being killed. But but the point of the book is to to go beyond that and see what are the values that we can get from from the movies, um, despite you know some of the bad things that may happen in them. 
See, that's the thing is that when you look at modern movies, again, John, I've been watching movies. I've seen the classics. I've seen the moderns. I grew up, I grew up on 1970s cinema. One of the first movies I ever, I ever saw in my life was Serpico. Okay. Not exactly family friendly, if you know what I mean. Mm. So I've seen mm -hmm. it all and I'm not, and, and I'm not a prude. Okay. When I was flipping just through the, the table of contents of your book and I see Citizen Kane and I'm thinking in my mind, it was before I had read the introduction. It was like, well, that doesn't seem like a Christian movie. But then I read your, the introduction to the book where it's not that they're necessarily Christian movies, but take a movie like Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is about the loss of innocence. Okay. I, I mean, that's mm -hmm. my interpretation. It's like yeah. going back to when I first saw it. The last, right. you know, the, the, the first line of the movie is Rosebud. And then you find out, spoiler alert, a lot of spoilers going on here. So if you're going to see any of these movies, we're going to spoil the crap out of it for you. Okay. <laughs> but at the, but at the end, you find out Rosebud is hearkening back to his childhood. Now that is right. the idea of innocence. That is heavily Christian. The idea of, of, of being childlike to enter into the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And that's what he loses. The main character, Charles Foster Kane, that's what mm -hmm. he loses. I think mm -hmm. it's important to emphasize to people is, is, is that, you know, there's a, there's so many, things that as Catholics, we could take from a lot of these movies that are for lack of a better word, secular. Okay. Right, but right. yet touch on themes that are important and universal because it seems like nowadays with a few exceptions, movies are just, they're just, they just go for pure realism. In other words, and, and, and there are no, they don't, there, or at least to me, there doesn't seem to be any real lessons there. There's nothing to yeah. reflect on just as a human being, not just necessarily as a Catholic. What are your thoughts on that? We have a couple minutes before well, the break. Yeah, as a, a friend of mine who, who um, actually, a fellow named Tim Appleman that I know from college, he's the one who kind of suggested the title for the book to me. And, and he observed that um, a lot of the classic movies are, uh, or could be considered modern day parables. They're not... Um, strictly religious, but they do give us lessons to think about, lessons that are in keeping with the Bible, uh, with the Gospels, and things that are worth our, worth our attention. Um, so Citizen Kane is a good example, and one of the things that I um, point out in, in my essay about Citizen Kane is the, um, I'm, I'm very big on the capital sins, you know, the seven deadly sins, and, and the one there um, is gluttony, that, that uh, Charles Foster Kane had this this need to to acquire things and acquire people and and uh, to his you know to his downfall he couldn't he lost everybody that he ever loved because he was so obsessed with with acquiring things that uh, he didn't need them he was a rich person all his life but he just had this this issue with with gluttony and uh, and so there's a lot of, I mean there's 95 movies in the book and and I go with similar lessons in a lot of them where you might not overtly think of it as a Christian uh, movie, but there are many, many themes that you can get out of them. Most of them are, are positive themes, you know, uh, gluttony maybe a little bit more on the negative side, but um, people building each other up is, is frequently something that happens. I know um, Casablanca, again, is a good example where, where uh, Victor Laszlo, one of the main characters, is... Um, he is a, uh, a beatitudinal person, if you will. He's, he's, uh, he hunger and thirsts for righteousness, and he suffers persecution uh, because of righteousness. He, he's trying to free people from the oppression of the Nazis. Um, and so that's uh, a very good lesson. And then on the other side is uh, Rick Blaine, the Humphrey Bogart character, who, um, who has been in the past in love with Victor's wife, and he has to make a decision in the movie. Um, he has an opportunity to leave Casablanca with, with Ilsa. And you don't really know until the last minute, is he going to do the right thing? Or is he going to sacrifice himself um, for, the, for the betterment of mankind, so to speak? Uh, and so there, there's uh, many movies like that where, where you have uh, an interesting Christian parable to be told. It's funny, when I first saw Casablanca, I, I saw a lot of the, the, um, the older movies later on in life. Again, I, I grew up watching movies mostly from the 70s, the 80s, so a lot of them, you know, in the theaters. Um, I remember being blown away in Casablanca at the, at the moment that you're talking about at the end, because you really think Rick is going to get on that plane with Elsa. 
Mm. And, and then not only doesn't he get on the plane, he, he shoots Strasser. <laughs> uh, he shoots, what's his name? Uh, the great actor, German actor, Conrad. Conrad yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Right. And, he, and he shoots him and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? But again, I'm saying this is a movie lover. In other words, this is a, this is a movie. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat this a few times through the show. You didn't have to see the bullet go into Strasser's body to get the uh -huh. idea that Rick just killed him. See, it's... it's <laughs> If from, from an artistic point of view, again, I'm, I'm saying this from an artistic point of view, it's unnecessary. Let's leave it there one second, because then we're going to get into some more specifics of specific movies. Uh, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the new New York metropolitan area. And we are having a great conversation at the front line with John Rizzo talking about his book, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and Eternal Life. John, stick around. And the audience, please stick around. We'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world. And Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello, way in the breach, talking about Hollywood with John Rizzo. And we're talking about John's new book, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and Eternal Life. So I think real important, I'm going to hand it over to Joe Casablanca. We touched on in the last, uh, at the end of the last segment, talking about uh, fight, thirsting for righteousness and fighting fighting for it, self-sacrificing, all right, or self-sacrifice that Rick exemplifies at the end of the movie. I'm going to hand it over to Joe because well, we're going to keep it with the more uh, well-known movies for our audience. Remember, this is 95 movies that John's writing about, but uh, but let's. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Joe and let's keep it moving. Let's talk about On the Waterfront. This was filmed in Hoboken. John, you're a son of Jersey City. I, uh, mm -hmm. I went to graduate school at St. Peter's, and I also went to Jersey City State for graduate school. I like to call it Harvard on the Hudson, so I'm very uh, versed in- Harvard on the Hudson. Gotta love it. Oh, my Jersey City State uh, time there. Um, what's it called? Let's talk Terry Malloy. Um, yeah. He's one of the characters in uh, On the Waterfront, played by Marlon Brando. Um, obviously, he was a rough character. Um, he was a fighter. He was, you know, kind of in and out of the mob. Um, and then he basically, his conscience started to play on him. And this is, I think, one of the themes in that film that I think, like, to be honest with you, I think it's one of the greatest films ever made, in my yeah. view. But yeah. talk a little bit about the conscience piece, um, and then we could get into uh, the priest character as well in the film. Sure, sure. As you said at the start, Terry is just sort of a washed-up ex-boxer who's who's uh, hanging out with the Longshoremen's Union. Um, has an easy life, relatively speaking, because he's on the good side of the corrupt people. Um, and he doesn't really want for anything. He doesn't have much of a life because he's a, he's just a schlub sort of, but uh, he, he's got things pretty easy. He just hangs out on the uh, on the top of the coffee bean piles and does nothing all day. Looks at, uh, I don't know, he's looking at Playboy or something. I don't really remember what the magazine was that he was looking at, but uh, he, he does go and undergo a transformation uh, during the movie. And I think one of the key things to his uh, awakening of his conscience is that he becomes um, self-aware. And I think self-awareness is a very important characteristic in people, which uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't have too much self-awareness. They just go about their daily lives doing what they're doing and don't really give much thought to what 
what they're doing or why they're doing it or what the impact is on the uh, greater good. Um, but uh, his his conscience starts to awaken when when one of his best friends is killed. And of course, Terry unwittingly is uh, used to set the guy up to be killed, um, which bothers him a little bit. He kind of gets over it. You know, uh, Johnny Friendly gives him some money to go get drunk and he kind of gets over uh, feeling bad about what he did. But um, then of course he, he develops a, a romantic interest in the de deceased sister, which is really what triggers him to um, become a better person. You know, he turns his life around because he wants to win her affection. And he also starts noticing other things that are going on that these guys who were his buddies, who are the leaders of the corrupt union, really aren't very nice people, you know, which he guess has, he was kind of oblivious to that before because he had no reason not to be. But now he sees that um, things aren't really quite uh, up and up is a term that they use a lot in the movie. Um, and eventually, you know, another worker gets killed, um, is murdered basically by the, by the corrupt union because he was going to talk to the Waterfront Crime Commission. Um, and this furthers the awakening of Terry's conscience. Uh, he, he knows now that these guys that he was buddies with are really bad. You know, they'll basically do anything to anybody. Uh, eventually they end up killing Terry's own brother, even though he was in really in deep with them. Um, so th that's uh, really it. It becomes a question of him, you know, becoming aware of his surroundings, becoming aware of what it is that he's involved with and uh, realizing that these guys are not good and, and it's not the way that he should be living his life. You know, isn't that something like for all of us as Catholics, you know, the awakening of our conscience? Um, I could think of things, I mean, in my own life when I was a young man that I wouldn't think twice about being, say, bad. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I lived in Hoboken, you know, the, uh -huh. the movie was uh, filmed in Hoboken. A right. lot of familiar scenes, if you're familiar with Hoboken. Sure. Um, different time you know i lived in the 90s in hoboken when things were starting to get you know regentrified and i can remember going to saint anne's church in hoboken going to confession and i'm not going to tell you what i confessed i don't think that's appropriate <laughs> but what i will tell you is i was arguing with the priest in the confessional he's telling me something and he was clearly right and i look back at that moment as an adult now, as a 51-year-old man, and he was trying to guide me in a certain direction in a gentle way. And mm -hmm. yet I was, my conscience was dead to it. So uh -huh. I think this is something that is very important. You know, something I always touch upon um, in a lot of things that I do within the church is blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see the face of God. The conscience is very like important and and the church is to guide our conscience it's not the, the primacy of conscience we like i said as that young man in the confessional i thought i was right i was wrong clearly mm. and the priest was right talk a little bit about that the conscience like in your view i mean you're a lawyer and i mean i'm sure in your in your practice of law you've seen a lot of things the good and the bad you know what i mean talk a little bit about the development of conscience um in society and the need for it well the, the need for uh, is that if you want society to prevail if you want good to prevail in society then you've got to hope that the people who are in your society can recognize the difference between good and bad and and do the good um i do think that there are some people who never develop a conscience um mainly because i don't think they really want to and uh i think for myself um you know we, we talked at the beginning that i was uh instructed by the Sisters of Christian Charity at St. Nick's Grammar School, I think that they instilled in us at an early age the importance of doing what was right. Um, partially because there is a fear of punishment, but partially because um, if, if God loves you and you love God, you want to do what's right by him. Um, and I think that certainly in the current age, that's not that important to a lot of people. Um, whether they believe in God is one thing, but they, a lot of people seem to think that 
anything goes. See, whatever they can do, they'll get away with it. God will eventually forgive them, or it just doesn't matter. Everybody gets to heaven, so what's the difference what I do? Um, that, that's kind of the impression I get from a lot of people, people who even um, profess to be Christians, but they just do whatever they want to do because they think it's okay. Mm. That's a, a peculiar anomaly in uh, today's society, but yeah, that's... Uh, I want to I want to I want to keep going with that John for a second stay on on the waterfront obviously Terry Malloy's character um he starts to feel something obviously because he realizes that he's complicit in the death of his friend right okay he actually hints at it in that original meeting when he walks back in the bar afterwards he says yeah I didn't know that you know he goes you know like that was going to happen to him right. and then he kind of like like you said Johnny Friendly throws him a couple bucks and he goes probably out and gets drunk He's, his conscience is still really kind of dead at that point. Then he encounters uh, his friend's sister, who then he develops right. a, a brilliantly portrayed by Eva Marie Saint, okay? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Conscience is one thing, and God speaks to us through our conscience, to know what's right and wrong and to prompt us by his grace to do what's right. But Jesus also gives us the church. And in the context of On the Waterfront, directed by Ilya Kazan, okay, the priest plays a significant role in that movie. Again, incredibly played by Carl Malden. Yeah. It is overtly Catholic because mm -hmm. he's a Catholic priest and mm -hmm. he's on the waterfront and he's ministering to souls. And the main soul he's ministering to in the movie is Terry's soul, but mm -hmm. also the other longshoremen too. Talk about Father Barry. Talk about the need for good priests to assist us See, now we're not on our own here. That's what the priests are supposed to do, at least one thing. They're supposed to assist us in the development of our conscience. Father Barry does that for Terry Malloy. Talk about the importance yeah. of Father Barry's character. Yeah, well, interestingly, Father Barry has a little bit of a development to do also because at the start of the movie, uh, he's not he's not the world-beating priest that he turns out to be later on. You know, he's... Uh, he goes down to the to the um, death scene after Joey is killed, and um, what does he say? He says to Edie, "I'll be in the church if you need me." And then Edie, you know, kind of flips out on him a little bit there. But he'll be in the church, you know. Did you ever hear of a saint hiding in the church? Um, and that uh, sparks something in, in Father Barry, and he decides he's got to become a more proactive priest. He goes down and meets with the uh, longshoremen, the the uh, oppressed longshoremen. Um, and makes them know, makes it known to them that he's available for them, you know, if they, if they need him. And then he arranges for the meeting in the church uh, with the with them to talk about um, all the bad things that happen in this union that they're part of, and and what they might be able to do to fight back against the union. Uh, of course, that doesn't go as great as you'd like to think it does because this is not a uh, a comedy it's a it's a pretty serious movie and so there's some thugs that come along and bust some skulls after this meeting um but father barry he he realizes i guess he recognizes something in terry he probably recognizes that terry is in love with edie and that he's that's a way of working on terry to get his uh conscience back uh, in gear um or in gear in the first place, I guess I should say, because I don't know if it ever was before. Um, but but he does uh, help Terry to recognize, you know, what what's wrong in the Longshoremen's Union, and uh, how Terry can possibly help out to get things um, moving in a way that they should be moving. You know, the, the the character of Father Barry reminds me a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, is uh, Father Jerzy Papalusko. During the Solidarity Movement in Poland, he was martyred. He was killed. And he worked with the workers. He uh -huh. was there with them. You see, like you said, the pre a saint doesn't stay in the church. He goes out of the church. He was with his people and there's a scene in that movie it actually like brings a tear to my eye there was a murder and he goes into the hull of the ship and he's like right and this is a crucifixion oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a crucifixion and they're pelting him with garbage yes, as he yes. says it it's very powerful powerful it's like christ-like like, like mm -hmm. they're like shut up father shut up father and he just is like talk about that because i think it's very powerful 
Well, it is. It's. Uh, I mentioned it in in my book, and it's uh, one of the most powerful speeches in any movie. I think where he talks about um, basically the theme being that the crucifixion didn't only happen two thousand years ago. It happens every time someone tries to stand up to corruption and gets cut down for it. Um, and he tries to uh, persuade the the longshoremen that he is there for them and that God is there for them, that God sees what goes on uh, and the way that they're treated by the higher ups in the longshore, uh, in the union. Um, and that God stands beside them every day when they're uh, basically being abused. Um, and he also, you know, I, I think makes a pitch uh, to some extent to try to, to soften the hearts of the, the leaders of the longshoremen's union. Um, you know, I don't think he gets anywhere unfortunately, but he tries, you know, to, to kind of persuade them that uh, there's more to life than the easy money. Um, there's more to life than, than, than being a big shot, that uh, you have a, a responsibility to your fellow man to treat them properly, um, to be a good citizen, to be a good Christian. Uh, and, and he goes, you know, he puts himself on the line there. As you said, they, they're throwing beer cans at him and, and and produce and all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> so you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Rosanello. We're having a great conversation with John Rizzo about John's book, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and Eternal Life on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. John, I just knew when I was putting together this interview, I was like, we're not going to get to everything, uh, which is fine. Um, but there are a couple. I mean, I think On the Waterfront, On the Waterfront's one of those movies that's more overtly Catholic, mainly because mm -hmm. of the character of Father Barry. The mm -hmm. speech you gave, just as an aside, back when I, in the day, when I needed a good monologue, um, I had a lot of success uh, using that monologue. Nowadays, you walk into an agent's office or a casting director and you start talking about, you do a monologue from on the waterfront talking about Jesus Christ. You'll, your, your odds of getting that part are slim and none and slim as a horse on his way out of town. That's mm -hmm. just the way it is. That movie wouldn't be made now because Carl Morden's not ecumenical enough. Father Barry's, you know, he's not inclusive enough because he's talking <laughs> about Jesus Christ. Let's yeah. move on though. Let's move on. One of my favorite movies, okay, is uh, Forrest Gump. Oh, phenomenal film. Okay. <laughs> and maybe I didn't appreciate it at the time. Again, we all have our journey. And at the time, maybe I was uh, in a little bit of a dark place. But on one level, I always loved Forrest Gump. But as a Catholic, I love Forrest Gump even more because Joe and I, one of the things we try to do, John, on the front line with Joe and Joe is to emphasize a radical trust in providence. Forrest uh -huh. Gump's all about that. Uh -huh. Forrest Gump is, is, is a guy who's a, a trusting guy, not just in his mama, all right, but in his father in heaven, okay? Mm -hmm. So let's mm -hmm. talk about Forrest Gump a little bit. Okay. So, yeah, Forrest Gump is, uh, I guess, intellectually challenged, you would say? Would so am I, John. <laughs> um, but he is, um, he is so innocent and childlike that you know, you, at least as the audience, you can't help liking him. I guess not everybody in the movie likes him. Some people find him to be kind of annoying. Um, but, you know, as, as uh, we read in the Bible, as Jesus said, we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And um, Forrest is, is childlike uh, because of his lack of intellect, because of his trusting nature. Uh, he, he is definitely childlike, and um, he lives his life in a very um, other directed kind of way. Um, he, he's very little that goes on in the movie you would consider selfish on his point. He's always thinking of uh, helping other people, uh, whether it's carrying uh, his friend Bubba out from, from being shot up at the war, or if he's uh, helping uh, Lieutenant Dan survive his, his injuries at the war, uh, or trying to get um, Jenny on the straight and narrow. Um, unsuccessfully of course but he's always trying uh he's always trying to help people he's a beautiful person is the way i would like look like i saw that in the movies he's beautiful like as a human and yes. and ultimately you know listen we've all met all types of people you know i i work on wall street you're a lawyer joe has worked on wall street i've met with the rich and i've met the poor 
um, alike. And ultimately, that's how God, when we meet him, that's how we're supposed to be. Like Forrest Gump, that innocence, the trust. And the thing we've mentioned on our show, which I loved about Forrest Gump, is when he's making his gun. And, and he says, why are you doing that so well, Gump? Because you told me so, sir. <laughs> and I love that scene because that is it's how- funny, but It's funny, but it's just, it's, it is a lesson of the movie. Forrest Gump's uh, his submission. I know that's a bad word nowadays. His submission to authority. Why did you put that gun together so quickly? Because you told me to, drill sergeant. He trusts the drill sergeant. He respects mm-hmm. the authority of the drill. I'm glad you brought it up, Joe, because that was on my mind. Go ahead. No, but I, I, that is how we, as Catholic men, all three of us are Catholic men, are to trust God and his church. You know, like, I've learned this in, in some ways the hard way as a younger man, that my way doesn't work. I, John, it doesn't work. I know this for certain. And God's way does, and I trust him. And we have to trust God because you told me so. And sometimes that's not logical in the ways of the world. Listen, we're all in the world. You know, we got to pay bills. We got kids. Like, like say, as a Catholic who isn't contracepting, why are you having kids, Joe Resinello? My wife's pregnant. I'm 50. It's our fifth kid. People are like, you're crazy. Because God told you to. <laughs> because this is, we're supposed to be open to life. So God told me to. And that, and I trust him. And mm. I, now I don't do it as well as Gump. But at the same time, like, we're supposed to talk about that as a Catholic man, John, and how that is like that, like reflected, I call it just beauty. He's yes. beautiful. Talk about that. Well, you already did. What do you oh, nice. <laughs> but I'm sure you have something to say, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, he just goes through life uh, being obedient and being loving. Um, he, he, as you said, as Joe, the other Joe said, he submits. He submits to Lieutenant Dan. Uh, he does, even though Lieutenant Dan is uh, certainly a bit of a cynical, uh, obnoxious character, um, but he is, uh, he is the lieutenant, and um, Forrest listens to his lieutenant and does what he's told. And one, one of the things that I liked about the movie is that you know, it's, it's sort of um, apolitical. I, I like to try to be apolitical whenever possible, you know, and so it shows uh, that Forrest meets President Kennedy, but he also meets President Nixon, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't discriminate against Republicans, which... <laughs> I think in today's Hollywood, that might be an issue a little bit, you know? Yeah, that, that, that might be a little bit of an issue. Yeah, you know what yeah. I, I, I'd love for you to talk about Lieutenant Dan for a second, um, right. just because I do want to get to one point. We have about eight or eight or nine minutes left. I do want to mention It's a Wonderful Life and one okay. topic on that in particular. But I think it's interesting between Lieutenant Dan, when you talk about the trust that Forrest has in Providence, do Lieutenant Dan believes in, in, in Providence, too. Right. But it's his right. version of Providence. Yeah. I, 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 I am meant to die on the battlefield like my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father before me. Right. But that's not trusting in God's providence. And God had a little bit of a different plan for Lieutenant Dan's life. He that did. Lieutenant Dan might have seen that if he would have been more open to God's providence as far as Gump is. Talk about <laughs> Lieutenant Dan a little bit. A little bit of the prodigal son aspect going on there. Sure, sure. Well, of course, he's a very bitter man um, because he doesn't get to die on the battlefield like he thought he was supposed to, as he thought he was supposed to. Uh, Forrest Gump, you know, ruined that whole thing for him. He saved his life. It was terrible. Uh, so he becomes, as we see in the movie, becomes very bitter. He's got uh, serious issues. For one thing, he's, he's lost his legs, so he's in a wheelchair, but he's uh, drinking very heavily. Um, he's not a very pleasant person. And um, but he, he does interestingly have have uh, an affection, if you want to call it that, for Forrest when he meets him in New York City um, some years later, uh, and and Forrest is being insulted and made fun of by some of Lieutenant Dan's acquaintances. Um, the lieutenant takes up for Forrest in that, which is a little bit surprising. And um, later on, thanks to Forrest. Uh, 
Lieutenant Dan does become something like the prodigal son. Uh, Forrest pursues him, pursues him almost like God pursuing, pursuing us, you know, um, wanting to bring us back into the fold. And he eventually does uh, impose upon, not impose, but, but persuade Dan to come down to him, to his boat. Uh, and Dan does, and, and Dan doesn't, I don't think he, Dan even knows why he's there at first, but uh, he, he kind of, he makes his peace with Forrest. He makes his peace with God. Yeah. And um, he becomes a, a model citizen. You know, he eventually even gets his legs back. But uh, let's leave, let's leave uh, Forrest Gump there for a sec because we want to get on to one more, we think, important lesson from classic movies. You're at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello having a wonderful conversation with John Rizzo about his book that you can buy on Amazon.com, which is Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, hope, love, and eternal life. There's a lot of lessons, John, in um, It's a Wonderful Life, okay? Mm -hmm. But Joe wants to ask you about one in particular. Joe and I talk on the show all the time about this consumerist society we live in, chasing after every nickel, chasing after every nut, thinking that that's what the meaning and purpose of life. Not so in It's a Wonderful Life. Well, the film basically, for those who don't know, I mean, it, it, it represents the nobility of the common man. Um, and obviously, that's what this show is, John. Joe and I, we are not academics. You know, we're not dummies, but we're not academics. And uh, we're and Christ was a common man, and his disciples were common men. And common mm -hmm. men can do great things. And in the film, uh, there's a sign on the Bailey building in Lone, and it says this, all you can take with you is that which you have given away. It's mm -hmm. reminiscent of the theme of Francis. You know, it is, it's in giving, it, it, you know, that we receive. Mm -hmm. um, and it's in dying that we go to eternal life. I right. think that is very true. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think this is an idea that the culture has lost. It's about getting out there. Yeah. It's not yeah. about giving. Um, the happiest people I have ever met are the missionaries of charity. And all they do is give. Talk about uh -huh. that in the in the film, the theme and the importance of it. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mentioned, I think I mentioned in the book that uh, I probably saw the film a couple of dozen times before I even noticed that sign there. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's there under, uh, I think it's under a picture of, of uh, Peter Bailey. Um, and the director, Frank Capra, had made an, another movie some years earlier called um, You Can't Take It With You. And which the, the idea being there that uh, when you die, you're dead and you can't take what you, whatever you might have acquired during your earthly years. Uh, but this sign, uh, all that you can take with you is that what you have given away is a little bit of a different thing. It's, it's basically saying that we will be rewarded for that which we have done, for the good things we have done while we're here on earth, that uh, we don't need to um, gather up treasures on earth, but we need to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven by the good that we do on earth. And those are the things that we will be able to take with us when we die, which is the good things that we've stored up in heaven. So that's, uh, it, it's uh, not what the common thought processes in society these days, the, as you said, the consumer and, and uh, acquire things all the time, but it's um, being generous, being charitable, giving to others are the things that will uh, make us good in God's eyes. Is you know what I find interesting, John, about um, George Bailey, the center, the main character of It's a Wonderful Life, and if you wanted to contrast him a bit with Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump has it as he's challenged intellectually. Forrest Gump has almost his blind confidence in God and authority, his mother. George is a pretty smart guy. Yes. George has to realize or recognize providence, but George does it by making the right decisions, by doing what he knows to be right. And George wants to conquer the world in the movie. Right. He wants to conquer the world. But when confronted with right and wrong, with the idea of being selfish or selfless, George is constantly selfless. Yes. Okay? Yes. And at the end of the movie, he realizes what, what his, you know, what, what his destiny in, in life is. This is George Bailey. He's not going to conquer the world. He's going to raise his family. It's not going to be easy. All right? But he's got friends. 
Mm-hmm. He's got true love and true friends. We have about a minute, John. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, sure. He wants to uh, shake the dust off of Bradford Falls and get away from the crummy, uh, crummy little Bailey building and loan. That's his life's desire to go out and and uh, do great things. And he ends up getting stuck in in Bedford Falls his whole life and never gets out to do those great things. But, uh, you know, obviously the the message is that he's been doing great things all along, just never really realized it because he's been helping his fellow man. He's been helping them get ahead in life, uh, helping them become homeowners um, and, and always almost like Forrest Gump, always acting in a selfless way, uh, being an other-directed individual, even even when he doesn't really want to be. <laughs> He'd rather be out making a million dollars, but um, he stays behind and, and helps his neighbors instead. Absolutely. I want just a final point. I, I, I always love when uh, when uh, George George Bailey and, uh, and his wife, and um, what was his name, the Italian? Uh, Martini. Mr. Martini. When yeah. he has him in his house, what does he give Martini? Bread and wine. Yes, yes. Frank exactly. Capra was a Catholic. Okay? Yes, of course. And of the course. gifts that he gives when he when they move into their house are bread and wine. John, we have to leave it there. I know we, we could go on for hours. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a great conversation. Joe Rissanello at the front line with Joe and Joe. Uh, John Rizzo, you have to go out and buy his book, Moving Pictures to Move Your Soul, 95 Classic Movies for Peace, Hope, Love, and eternal life. John, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, our dear brothers and sisters, for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. For all Veritas content, please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app and follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube until they take us down, of course, which I'm sure they will. But until then, like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell, do all that fun stuff. Help us however you can, particularly with your prayers. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.